0: This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at Johnson at parkviewfindley.org. This is the last week in our series, Unforgettable. And it's been such a fun series. I hope that you enjoyed it been blessed by it. As we've heard from the leaders of our church about Scripture that has been significant in their lives, meaningful to them. And I've had the opportunity to share several scriptures that have been meaningful to me. <clears throat> next week we start a new series called Ecclesia. It's a word in the New Testament that refers to the early church, the gathered believers, and we're going to learn about what the New Testament says about who we're supposed to be as the church and what we're supposed to do. I'm very excited about what's coming in the next few weeks. But for this last sermon in our Unforgettable series, I wanted to choose a an, another meaningful verse, and not only one that's meaningful for me, but one that will be meaningful for us so i'm taking a big guess here and choosing a verse that you also will will share a passion for and actually i think even people outside of the church this is a verse that they would recognize and maybe even know themselves it's a verse that many people have seen especially as we get close to nfl season it's going to be presented for millions of people probably by a large man without a shirt and a blue wig on at the end zone the sign that says, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is a, a verse that has been meaningful to me. I think, I'm pretty sure, it's the first verse that I ever memorized, that I ever hid in my heart. One of those verses that, that because it, it's in my memory, has helped form and shape my thinking my personality, my perspective about God. I've had a lot of time to think about those things because I grew up in a a Christian home. When I was little, my dad was a minister. And there's there's never a time in my life that I haven't known about God. I can't think back to a moment when I heard about God or Jesus and said, oh, wow, I've never known that. I've always known, I've always believed in God and Jesus as his son. I've heard stories about the Bible my whole life. I, my dad would sit us down at the table and talk about Scripture. He'd have um, examples, visuals. I think he was practicing his lessons on us at home, me and my sisters, before, before uh, leading at church. But I, I had this wealth of knowledge as a, as a child about the Bible. Things I've, a lot of, I've forgotten <laughs> in the years that have come to pass. But I remember one of those lessons in particular. When my dad started talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what it would mean for me and my sisters, each of us, to recognize our need for the Lord. That we were sinners in need of a Savior. And that grace through Jesus Christ was the thing that we needed. That our coming to church with mom and dad wouldn't be enough. We couldn't just attend until we got old enough to make a decision for ourselves that, that a relationship with Jesus Christ that was real and genuine would have to be our own decision, made of our own free will. And it would be our responsibility to live according to that relationship. It was August of 1988 when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and was baptized. I was eight years old. Now, you can do the math, and unfortunately— I'm getting older. But I remember, I remember that lesson clearly. And I'm grateful to my parents for the legacy of faith that they left me and my sisters with, that we've passed on to our kids. And as a, as a young man, as eight years old, recognizing myself as a sinner in need of a savior, yeah, I'd done things wrong, but there was more for me to do <laughs> There were things in the world I didn't even know about yet at eight years old, and, and yet repentance that goes with that decision to accept Christ was, was crucial to my budding faith of recognizing wrong and surrendering it to God and turning away from that sin and turning back to Him, carrying me through those years, carrying me through these years, living in repentance, acknowledging that relationship and living according to it day by day. Now, as I was growing up in the church, I went to camps and retreats. I heard speakers, dynamic people talking about their their faith in God, a conversion experience. They would tell stories about about being on the brink of destruction, of addiction, of toxic relationships, of of near-death experiences, that when they accepted Christ, miraculous things happened in their lives. They were turned around from darkness, absolute darkness to light. And I listened to those stories as a young man and thought, wow. How am I ever going to be able to talk to people about their need for Jesus without that? Shouldn't I have something like that to talk about? To, to describe to people the miraculous power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. What am I going to do? How am I going to have a testimony? It, it doesn't exist. But what I've come to find out is that when we surrender our lives to the Lord, he uses all of who we are for his glory. And every story, my story, your story, is meaningful. The people that we encounter on a daily basis need to hear about God's love. They need to hear about the miraculous power of Jesus. And that's the miracle. It's not about the things that I did before that. It's about how he saved me. That's the story of what he did for me. And that my perspective of that story is going to be meaningful to a person in a different way than your story is going to be meaningful to a person. And that all of us, when we work together for the good of the gospel, sharing the love and grace of Jesus Christ can make an incredible difference in the world around us when we all surrender and follow where God is leading us to share that story, care about people, and help them see their need for Jesus as Lord and Savior as well. That's why this verse is meaningful to me, not only because it reminds me of what God has done, but because it reminds me of that moment of story, that moment of interaction, helping people see their need for Jesus. Have you ever thought about John 3:16, about who said it, about what was happening in the course of history, when those words were said? It's found in John 3, obviously is an interaction between Jesus and one of the Pharisees. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, we'll read. You can use the Version app. Just open up the, uh, the Bible app, search for Parkview app, and you'll find scripture and sermon notes in the U Version app. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, let me stop for just a second. Pharisee. Jewish ruling council. These are the people who have been, throughout the Gospels, standing in opposition to Jesus, trying to stop him from proclaiming that he is the Son of God. Very particularly, that's offensive to them. And not just trying to keep Jesus from telling people that information. They have been working adamantly to kill him, to keep him from speaking. This man is from among them who recognized the truth about Jesus and wanted to know more. And so he invited Jesus to come and meet him at night. Convenient that no one else would be around, none of the other religious leaders would be witness to this interaction, and asked Jesus and talked to Jesus about who he was. Jesus replied to this statement Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So think about the framework of this man's mind. He is ardently devoted to the the law of the Old Testament. That's that's his job as a Pharisee on the ruling council, to to keep the law, to proclaim the law, to make sure the Jewish people are following the law. And his his perspective of faith is is a very clear box. Think of the, the literal nature of his mind to say, hold on. The physics here don't line up. (laughs) I don't see how this is going to happen. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. and will not come into the light, for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is an incredible moment. This interaction, this discussion between Jesus and a religious enemy, someone who was standing in opposition to him, and yet found common ground in the truth of who Jesus was. And Jesus began to speak to him about his his spiritual need, that there was a flaw in his thinking about being good enough to attain his own salvation, to be good enough to please God, that he would fail in that attempt and that what he needed was to be born again. And through this story, Jesus provides for us an example, the value of sharing our story, the value of talking to people about their need for the Lord. And the vital truth is that God loves us enough to send his son, Jesus, to save us. That's the love of God that motivates him to act on our behalf. To offer us salvation. To bring us to a place where we can accept his love and grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, you might have looked in your bulletin today and gotten a little nervous. Usually there's two or three points. I give you room to fill in the blank and take your own notes. Don't be scared by what's there. It's a lot. Now, at the end of our services, we typically offer a time of invitation. And very briefly, I'll cover the basics of what that invitation means. Today, we get to talk about the full picture of what that means. And so I provided scripture for you, provided some blanks to fill in. Please take your own notes, please. I, I want you to... Uh, hear what I have to say. I want to hear what the the Word of God has to say to all of us about God's intention for us as we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. I've had an opportunity to to provide this message in different different situations to different people, um, and I'm glad to be able to do it today. And the challenge that we face as we move into biblical truth like this is the decision we have to make when we hear it to give our allegiance to the Word of God and to hold it high. And in order for us to do that, that means that we're going to have to take our allegiance away from the things that we have given it to in the past. For me, I grew up in a a church that, that taught me good things about the Bible, but they taught me things that were incomplete and in some ways false. Now, they didn't mean to do that. They weren't maliciously saying wrong things. But as I've studied and grown and learned from other ministers, I've recognized that the the Word of God is the one truth that we need to cling to. And no matter what else we've heard in our lives, we have to make a decision about whether we're going to give our allegiance to what we've grown up believing or whether we're going to trust the Word of God above all else. Sometimes that means we have to give our allegiance to God's Word over a denomination that we have belonged to and recognize the differences and choose God's truth over that denomination. Sometimes that's tradition that we've grown up following, maybe the tradition of family. and In order to hold God's Word high, we have to let go of those things that we were, were taught to do, the things that our family might still do, and that means turning away from, from that common ground a little bit because we value God's Word so much sometimes in order to honor god's word appropriately we have to let go of what our favorite theologian has been teaching that we've you know listened to the podcast watch online they say great things they're very meaningful things but sometimes they they take a tangent away from god's truth and we need to be careful and honor what god's word has to say there are other times when we have to choose to let go of our own experience over what god's word says we we've seen we've we've participated we we have felt things. But when we read God's Word, we find that there's more to the story. We find that there's uh, significance that we might have missed on our own. And sometimes we have to let go of those things that we've perceived in order to align our lives with the truth in God's Word. So our attempt today is to just let God's Word speak to us and find out His purpose for our lives, who we've called to be in relationship with Him. And first and foremost, in this process of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior and living our lives for him, we recognize that we, each of us, are in need of salvation or have been at one point in our lives. And that process begins with the acknowledgement that God is there, that God is present and he's on our minds. And Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter one, he said this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God, creator of heaven and earth, Left an imprint of himself on what he created. When we see the magnificent beauty around us, we see God in what he made. As you were driving to church this morning, you saw the skyline with the sun coming up, the beauty of God's creation, depending on where you're coming from. Maybe you saw buildings, not quite as beautiful, but still part of God's creation. And we recognize God is there. You saw yourself in the mirror this morning, and you see in you such intricacy, such detail that cannot have come from chance. God has left his image in us. And when we see creation, we see evidence of creator. As we recognize God is there, we begin to feel conviction. We begin to recognize who we are in relation to creator. And we recognize that there are things that, that aren't quite right. In John chapter 16, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit and what would happen when the Holy Spirit came after he was crucified. In John chapter 16, he said these words to them, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will, provide, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives to help us feel the tension Help us feel the guilt, that that conviction that there's something wrong when when we sin that needs to be resolved, that we've fallen short of God's glory, and that we need something outside of ourselves to overcome that, something that is God, that we were made not only to recognize God, but we were made to feel the the absence of God when he's not there. King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. He said this, He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God created us with with the recognition that without him we're incomplete. He set eternity in our hearts to to give us a longing for him that can't be answered by anything else in creation because it's eternal. No, No pleasure of this world, no pursuit, no wealth will ever fill the void left by God when we are apart from him. It can only be filled when we come into relationship with him. The problem is that we have sinned to deal with in our lives. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, all of us. There's no one who says, no, nope, not me. I'm better than that. No, we, we all have sinned, and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the punishment we deserve, the wages that we've earned through our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of our sin, we have a payment that needs to be made. God has given us a gift that makes that payment through Jesus Christ. In his perfect love, he recognized our need that we couldn't overcome, and he sent Jesus to take care of that. It's a need that we would want to have filled because we would feel that separation from God. The prophet Isaiah vocalized that that feeling of, of distance. Chapter 59, he said this, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear we recognize the damage we do in our relationship with God when we choose sin over him. And this gift from God answers that isolation and loneliness through the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice that answers the the payment that needs to be made. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were called on, every time they sinned, to offer sacrifice, to make payment for the wrong that they did. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, covering all sin for you, for me, for the world, for all time. The writer of Hebrews explains that in chapter 10. He said, "Here I am, I have come to do your will." And he set aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands, performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifice. Is which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The sacrifice of Jesus once is enough to cover all sin. Jesus sacrificed himself as an offering to pay for our sins. He shed his blood to provide grace to bring about forgiveness. And because his perfect blood was shed on the cross, we can accept forgiveness and grace that's been offered to us as a gift. Now, Scripture is clear that the gift is being offered and we get to receive it. It is a free gift, not something that we earn, but something that we are given instructions about how to take hold of. It begins with our belief in Jesus, a belief that has to be present. That Jesus is the Son of God, who died and rose again. And that's the verse that we're using today, is our unforgettable verse from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When we hear the message about Jesus Christ as the Son of God, we have a decision to make about whether or not we will accept that as true mentally. That's belief. Choosing to believe in Jesus, and that has to be present in our lives. This belief is foundational to our faith, and is foundational to our relationship with God. Paul in writing to the Romans said this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Belief must be present if we're to have faith in Jesus. And that belief should produce faith in our lives. We have faith in him. Ephesians 2 tells us, it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice how clearly Paul points to the action here in this verse, that God is saving us by his grace, and it's our faith that's present in the process. Not something that we do, something that we have, so that we receive the gift of God. It's faith that opens our hands to receive the gift. It's faith that motivates us to respond to the action of God on our behalf the book of Hebrews, we learn that faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure of, what we, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And in the process of describing faith, the writer of Hebrews gives us example after example of people, historically through Scripture, that have acted on their faith, who have been motivated, who have been driven to act on their beliefs, and that is what faith looks like. It's faith that enables us to make the choice of our own free will to accept the grace that's extended to us through Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 of the book of Romans, Paul says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Faith is built upon our belief in Jesus. We have to hear about the gospel, believe what we hear, and develop a faith to act. Motivated by the information, faith is produced by that message of truth. Based on our belief and faith in Jesus, we repent of our sins. When we receive salvation from God, we must acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we come before the Lord with truly repentant hearts, choosing to turn away from our sin and turn to God, to leave that sinful self behind so that we can live for Him instead. This process of turning to God with a genuine desire, not only to find forgiveness, but to leave behind our sinful desires is crucial to our relationship with Him. The book of Acts, chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, the apostles gathered with Jewish people around to celebrate this day. And among the crowd were those who were present at the crucifixion of Jesus, those who called on Pilate to send him to the cross. And they heard them speaking, they saw the miraculous things being done, and they recognized that Jesus truly was the Son of God, and they felt guilt over what they had done in being instrumental to his death. And they, they asked, what, what should we do? And Peter responded to them, In Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In response to their belief in Jesus, faith motivated them to respond. They needed to acknowledge the wrong that they had done and turn their lives away from sin toward God. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we read these words, that he was writing to the believers there, helping them understand their, their need for repentance. said, so even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We need to do more than just recognize that we've done wrong and acknowledge that we're sorry for it. We need to turn away from that wrong and turn toward God. And that was the purpose of Paul, pointing out the faults and flaws in the believers at Corinth. Sometimes we need people around us to help us point to our, our failures. Sometimes we're blind to our own faults. And, and it takes the, the careful advice of a trusted friend to help us recognize our need to change. And that's what Paul was doing for the believers there, to help them come to a place where they could turn away from their sin and turn toward God to truly repent. And as we come to God with repentant hearts, we need to confess Jesus as Lord. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this, "'Whoever acknowledges me before others, "'I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. "'But whoever disowns me before others, "'I will disown before my Father in heaven.'" When we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, it is a public declaration that he is the Son of God, that he is Lord. And not just that he is Lord with the right to rule generally over the earth, that his reign exists. It is a personal declaration that Jesus is my Lord. It is an act of submission to his will, acknowledging him over me, acknowledging his will over mine, acknowledging his, his purpose and his path for my life instead of trying to claim my own, accepting His will for me. We come back to that passage in Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. And acknowledging Jesus as Lord is significant and points us to the waters of baptism. And we're baptized into Christ. So Peter told the crowd in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter clearly described the appropriate response for the crowd at Pentecost, to repent and be baptized. And the result, he says, the result is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence in our lives. Throughout the book of Acts, we keep reading, We find occasion after occasion of people hearing about Jesus, understanding the truth, believing in him mentally, and being driven by faith to do something. And in each of those cases, they're baptized. The Apostle Paul, on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, worshiping Jesus Christ, he was blinded by the light, confronted by the Lord. And he heard the voice of Jesus calling him to continue on his way, inviting him to become the apostle to the Gentiles. A man there also had a vision from the Lord, a man named Ananias, who was told to take care of Saul when he arrived. And Ananias spoke to Saul and said this, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When Paul wrote to the, the church in Rome, he was very clear to continue this message to them, saying, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And think about the significant imagery that's present when we submit to baptism, that our old sinful self, that, that part of us that we've repented from is buried under the surface of the water. And as we're lifted up out of the water, we're raised to new life, clothed with Christ. The old is gone, the new is here. That's the meaning and significance that's there. When Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, he said this, the full, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And we're united with him in baptism. It is the time and place, the occasion by which that happens. When Paul wrote to Titus, the young preacher, he reminded him, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Hope. Not only for heaven, but a hope that is present for an eternal life that begins here as we surrender to his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, and begin living for him instead of living for ourselves. When Peter wrote to the, the Christians through his letters, he used more creative language to, to give us this message. First Peter chapter 3, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And in it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It's the miraculous provided to us as a gift that we accept based on our belief in Jesus as the Son of God, the resurrected Lord, our faith that motivates us to act and receive that gift, our repentance from sin, a confession of Jesus as Lord, and baptism in his name. And through that process of salvation, we find a new life in him, a life that we can surrender wholeheartedly to him, a life given to his will and to his way, a life that we're called to live in obedience, But we have to be careful when we think about this obedient life that we're called to. It's not what we do to earn that salvation. It's not what we do to stay saved. It is a response to that gift. It is gratitude that we give to God. It is an expression of our love to Him that we would want to live according to His will, that we would want to obey His instructions and commands, that we would live this new life devoted to Him instead of pursuing our own desires and pleasures that we would discover his purpose for us. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians chapter two, he said this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works, opportunities for us to live for his kingdom, to proclaim the message of the gospel, of the love and grace that's made possible through Jesus Christ. Things that God has prepared in advance, interactions you'll have with people that you didn't expect coming but God knew they were coming. He's prepared those interactions and he's prepared you when you accept him as Lord and Savior to live for him and take hold of those moments to share the incredible story of what God has done for you so that the people you meet can understand what God will do for them. When Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, he said this, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose And grace. Because God has a plan for you and for me. He has a purpose for us to give our allegiance to, a purpose for us to submit to, that we would choose instead of chasing after wealth, instead of chasing after relationships and pleasure, that we would surrender ourselves to God and recognize how wonderful his presence is in our lives, how how freeing it is to be forgiven and have new life in him and to use that new life for his glory to draw other people into relationship with him as well that's the significance of what we're talking about here that's the miraculous that we get to be a part of And this morning as we come to the end of our sermon i want to i want to invite you to think about where you stand in relationship to jesus and if you need to accept him as lord and savior because you believe in him as the son of god who resurrected after his crucifixion, if you have faith that is motivating you to repent of your sins and confess him as Lord and be baptized in his name, I want to I encourage you to step forward and discover God's purpose and plan for your life in him. To receive the gift of grace that he's offering. If you've already accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian hearing this message, I want to challenge you to think about the truth of God's Word, that you would make sure that your life aligns with what it is that He's calling you to do, and that you would use every opportunity that comes into your path, that you would acknowledge the plan of God to bring you together with another person so that you can take advantage of those moments to live for Him and proclaim the message of love and grace to those who desperately need to hear it. And they're counting on you. Will you be thinking about, praying about those moments so that you will be prepared to step forward with the message of truth? In a moment, we're going to begin singing together. If you have a decision to make, if there's anything in your life that you would like to have prayer for, please come forward as we stand and sing together. Please stand.